Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 253, and I'm Ryan Tansom, your host. Today's episode is a long time coming because it's going to be covering a topic that is insanely relevant right now and something that I get lots of questions on, and that is, what do I do if I got an out-of-the-blue offer? I mean, my gosh, the amount of times I've heard people say, well, I get an email once a week or I get someone calling me once a week. And that's just a pure onslaught of acquirers trying to buy businesses and just a volume of cold callers and email marketing campaigns and direct mailing. But then there are the ones that are actually legit where there's someone that you might know that's a strategic buyer, a strategic competitor, or someone that comes out of the woodworks where you're going, okay, Now this is something that I actually could think about because it's the right number, it's someone that makes sense, the timing was just perfect when you got it, whatever the circumstances are, now you're sitting there with an offer and you're going, oh my gosh, what do I do because I didn't think this was going to happen today or this year or in this current situation. So what we want to do in this episode is unpack exactly how you should handle that situation what you could do to increase your odds of having insane success when you encounter that situation and how to deal with it if you do get that offer and you hadn't been prepared. So my partner and co-founder of Arcona, Mr. Pat Hobby, is gonna be coming on the show and we're gonna be talking about what to do if you get an out-of-the-blue offer, what you can do to prepare yourself today to eliminate that anxiety of not knowing how you would handle that and how to be prepared to know exactly what you want what terms and conditions, what price, how to vet out the different types of buyers. So that way you can just be confident that you can say yes or no like that because you've been prepared and you know what's important to you and what your company's worth. We're going to be sharing real stories from real people, real situations, and even diving into the hazards of signing that LOI, the letter of intent, before you know everything that we're going to be talking about in this podcast. If you're not familiar with my partner Pat's background, Pat was a fractional CFO for decades. He's been through dozens of mergers and acquisitions from ESOPs to private equity. He was the director of shared services at a local private equity firm, helping them integrate the acquisitions and grow value afterwards. He and I partnered back in 2018 to create Arcona for the intentional growth training and delivering fractional CFO services and strategic planning. This is going to be a fun episode, and I really hope you enjoy this because this is going to be an episode that you can share with all your friends that are also dealing with out-of-the-blue offers. So without further ado, here's me and my partner, Pat Hobby, on what to do with an out-of-the-blue offer. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Well, Mr. Javi, here we are, and I'm surprising you with a topic. Okay. Uh, we, uh, the, the Mr. Planner is not really uh, anticipating this. Would you say I'm going to check my blood pressure? <laughs> yeah, I may, I may just drop off at any minute. 
So you and I have talked uh, now for probably about six to 12 months about us starting to have some of these conversations back and forth. Um, and, I, and I just wanted to pick a topic that you and I are encountering a lot right now. And I just want to have just a fun conversation about the things that we're seeing and things that people could be doing differently in these situations. And that's getting an out of the blue offer. You and I are watching that okay. all the time right now. And you and I, we haven't done the uh, current client analysis because I'm behind my, on my homework <laughs> to see the people that gone through the training. But I've noticed that it's like, it's got to be over 50% of the people these days that have had someone reach out since going through the training, people that have, you know, not planning on selling forever. And then someone comes knocking and then all of a sudden someone wants to entertain an audible offer and then things start rolling. So, you know, in no particular order, Pat, like, let's just kind of talk through like, why is this happening? What should people be doing? What, like, you know, because all of a sudden their mindset just gets flipped and now it's like, oh, there's all this panic. I like, gotta go, gotta like hit this lottery ticket, gotta make sure everything gets done. Yet yesterday I wasn't thinking about anything. Should we just start with like, why is this happening? And then what, what to do about it? Or what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. In before why it's happening, it can be anxiety inducing. I mean, it can, it can send somebody, a business owner, into a real panic to, have somebody reach out that they think is a serious offer and not be prepared for it. I mean, it's, you know, it, can, it like you say, it can be the lottery, but it, it can be really stressful. It's happening because there's a ton of money out there looking for a home. Uh, PE firms are coming down the food chain to smaller businesses. Um, I mean, they still want well-run businesses or ones that they think they can turn into well-run businesses, but there's a lot of money looking for, a place to get a return. Let's talk. Let's talk about that. People are scrambling all over to find some place to invest their money. Well, let's talk about that and the why that is. Because you and I, and uh, a bunch of our presentations said, "Oh, there's a lot of money sloshing around. There's a lot of money trying to go downstream." And people that aren't from the private equity investor world might not even know what that means. And I, I've, you know, me and my picture analogies like, oh, it's like the Pac-Man going down, <laughs> the bigger Pac-Man eating the smaller Pac-Man and just keeps going down. So, you know, you came from the private equity world. Why don't you just kind of give a, like a little bit of a overview of like what you guys did once you raised the money, like what was the goal and how did you guys go about doing it? And then we can talk about how the money is trying to chase the returns. Yeah. I mean, right now in the private equity world, it's easy to raise money. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, they're investing in the stock market. You can't get a return on bonds. I mean, there's, you know, people get nervous about, you know, the, you know, the stock market and some of the macroeconomic effects. We're not going to get into that. We won't get into cryptocurrency. I mean, those are just all kinds of things that people are a little bit nervous about. So they're looking for alternative ways to invest their money. So high net worth individuals are allocating a portion of their portfolio to alternatives like private equity or family offices, if you happen to be that big, and they're acting like private equity. So they want to go into the private markets to make investments because they think they can get a better return there than other investment vehicles. Um, Real estate investment trust or debt funds related to real estate investment trust, all kinds of things like that, that, that people are, are committing their capital to and private equity firms. Then once people commit their capital, the clock starts and they got to go find a place to deploy that capital because they want to get their fees off of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, 
and they're looking around for places for companies to buy. I mean, it's just it's just that simple that that you know there's a lot of wealth that's been generated over the last couple of decades. And people want to get a return on their money. Well, and, and we're not going to be diving too much into the private equity structure right now. This is a great place to start. And there's a good podcast for the listeners. Um, the Ultimate Guide on How Private Equity Works with Son- Sonny Vanderbeck that we'll put in the show notes. So if you want to go in and understand why and how PE firms work. But like, you know. <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. Podcast. Yeah, we, we tried to take. It was really good at articulating. When he can, because he, he he comes from a Sunday comes from a great spot because he doesn't have a hold period, which is makes him very, very unique in the, in the private equity world. And you know that I love to go down to the macroeconomics of why, but the, the, I know you're shaking your head. No, we're not going to be doing that, but, but like, I, I, I enjoy when you say that it's easy to raise money, you know, easy to raise 50 million bucks, hundred million, you know, a billion you're watching these funds and the record breaking uh, private equity fundraising. And just my comment on it is that it's because you have these pension funds, insurance companies, endowments, family offices. They, when you said they can't get the return, I mean, the normal risk adjusted rate, like with the certain amount of risk, you get a certain amount of return. And private equity in the past is, you know, 20% rate of return. And all of a sudden, these, these funds or these big pools of capital aren't able to get the return. So they're forced almost to go into these different areas. So the PE firms raise the money. And then all of a sudden, you now have like if a PE firm raises 100, 200 million dollars, now they have to like the, the money is so lucrative when they buy and grow value and then sell that they're they can deploy salespeople or whatever resource they need to go find these companies. So with our company with our customers, Pat, and you know, tapping into your background and experience too, where do the what what does these out of the blue offers look like? Where do they come from? And then how do you see those events usually unfolding? So they're coming from a couple of different places. They're coming from already established platform companies that PE firms hold, for example, in the trucking business or in the business services or manufacturing, whatever manufacturing type uh, business it might be. And they have a platform company and they're just out looking for bolt-ons to add to it so that they can, you know, increase their size, find some synergies, increase their multiple expansion. So it comes from existing platforms within private the private equity world. And that's where a lot of this is being driven or acquisition entrepreneurs or, you know, family offices. It's all kind of working the same. And then it's coming from, you know, when they're tapped out on that, they look for new opportunities to find a new platform company to start the whole process over again. P firms, they have fund after fund after fund after fund, you know, and they just keep rolling this on. It's a never ending game. And then, and then you have other companies that are looking to grow. We have clients right now that are in the process of buying other companies just to expand their footprint, to, to capitalize on the synergies, to look at you know revenue opportunities. We have we're working with clients right now where they're trying to grow through an acquisition process because we've done the analysis with them and and it's a little bit better to to buy as opposed to build it. I mean, there's another book that one of your podcast guests had, you know, had um, buy then, buy then build. So it's coming, it's coming from right all over. All all over. Now it it, it is, it's, you know, it's like analogizing it to the time to be a homeowner that wants to sell your house. It's now, it's now kind of a little bit of a seller's market where, where if you're, if you're positioned properly, you can maximize 
the results of what you're trying to accomplish. And we're going to unpack that right there. If your position in the, and because it's not just if, from if you're, looking, if you're looking to get out, right. So. If you're looking, but, and even if you weren't now, like we're going to unpack the, if you're positioned properly, not only from a mindset perspective, but also like, what does that mean from the financials and the operations and the executives and stuff like that? So we can go into that, but the thing you're going back to like, when you get these out of the blue offers, they could be from one individual or professional investment firm or a strategic competitor that's backed by a prof- you know professional investment firm like because i mean how many times have you and i heard like oh i get one a week but people don't even know what to do because like oh it's just fake which it may or may not be and it's a fishing expedition by a lot of these by a lot of these uh, companies or entities or people but there could still be potential and then right now i i the the spread between intrinsic value and then this transaction value. And I'd love for you to kind of give the the overview just quickly that because I, I'm we're watching people that had no intention of selling going, hey, this is maybe time because it's the seller's market, like you said. Can you can you quick quickly give the overview of intrinsic financial valuation compared to the transaction value? So the value of a business is based on the sustainability, predictability, and transferability of its cash flows. That's called that's the intrinsic value. You look at a business's cash flows and say, what value would the marketplace put on that cash flow in, in a world where somebody's going to buy that business as is and just run it as is with the same cost structure, same everything? That's the intrinsic value. Just inherently, what is the value of that business based on its cash flows? When you layer in the purpose of a deal, when somebody wants to come buy it. And they have another reason for buying it, bolted onto one of their existing companies, for example, or just add it to their company to expand geographically or product-wise. Then there's a purpose for the deal, and the transaction value may be worth more than just the intrinsic value because the buyer. the buyer to the buyer, because in that case, one plus one doesn't equal two, it equals three. And the, and the buyer's like, hey, if I can bolt this onto my current business, I'm then a bigger business with all the efficiencies and the gains that come along with that. And my, my value has increased more than just the EBITDA that I've added to, to my business because I'm, I'm big enough now. I've reduced some risk. Maybe I've reduced customer concentration. Maybe I've brought on some talent from the management team that, that's lowered my company-specific risk. So that that now instead of a five multiple, I'm at a seven. Yeah. So like let's say the let's say the EBITDA of the buyers now it's worth, it's worth more. Yeah. So let's say the EBITDA of the buyers two million, and you add a mil, you know, a half a million to it. That's what you meant by multiple arbitrage, right? You're talking like you're you're at you're combining that smaller multiple and EBITDA to your EBITDA, which then automatically gets a higher multiple. So it's on that half a million than it was just on its own. Most all the time, most all the time. So if, if in your example, if the, the company's got two and a half million of, of EBITDA, maybe I'm going to make this up, has a has a, a four multiple. I'm doing that just to make the math <laughs> easy. So, so then it's worth 10 million. But if they add a, a half million to it and they go to three, well, maybe now it's worth a five. So it's worth 15. So now it's, you've not only added EBITDA, which increases the value, but you may have multiple expansion, which increases value. And that half a million on its own is probably worth what, a two, three? Yeah, yeah. But you've gotten a five, mm-hmm. a bump of a five million. So when it's, it's so important as a potential seller 
to understand what's motivating the buyer. So that way you can do what? You can take advantage. I hate when you ask me questions like that, when you know the answer, you want me to do that. (laughs) So you can, so you can understand what their motivation is so that you can tap into that and maximize your transaction value. If you know what's driving them, you can address that and maximize what you're trying to do. I would also add to that, that you can use it as a filter to say, if you don't want them to gut your company, do certain things, understand that it can at least allow you to say, Hey, this is something that I'm willing to do or not do. And if you think about, let's go, let's go back up and say, okay, let's put our, our minds and from our experiences, Pat, of how many, like, what is the experience like that happens when someone gets an out of the blue offer where all of a sudden they're going, okay, this one might be something I wanted to look at because it's in my industry or like it just somehow it triggers something where it's like, okay, now this might be something explain like the shift in mindset there, like from your experience of what happens to that individual once they go, okay, now what? Well, like I say, it induces a lot of anxiety because most people aren't prepared for that. They aren't prepared to have the conversation, to understand what people are saying, to know how it impacts them, their business, their employees, their customers, their family. I mean, they're just, they're just not ready to have that conversation. So it's human nature. When you don't understand something, you just avoid it. You know, I mean, we've had so many clients that say, I get these, I get these out of the blue offers all the time or invitations to at least talk about an out of the blue offer. And I just ignore them. And, and it's, it's, it's not necessary to be in that position. Um, what needs to happen is if somebody approaches you and it looks interesting and you want to have a conversation with them, I'm old school. You should be able to pull out a piece of paper that you have and say, here's what I'm looking for. Here's what's important to me. Here are the, here are the numbers that I would have to hit. Here are, the, here are the terms and conditions that are significant to me if you want to have further conversations. If, if you do the work up front now, whether or not you're thinking about selling, to understand what's driving you both financially and non-financially. And, and you get that documented, you're planning for the future, then you've got the information you need to filter those to get to the serious, the people who are serious and talking with you. And if they don't pass the test, then tell them to move on. But that's what we work with clients all the time with. Get ready because if you're getting ready to grow the value of your business, which is an asset, you can deal with these out of the blue offers in a very logical, coherent way that doesn't suck up a lot of time and causes no anxiety whatsoever. It can literally be the opposite of what happens now where people aren't prepared and they're super anxious about what's going on. And I think it's so interesting, Pat, because like, as you and I have been on this multi, multi-year journey of like selling knowledge, essentially, right? And the, the accumulation of understanding. And it's been a difficult thing for me. And then all of a sudden, I've watched now people go full cycle, where they get these out of the blue offers, and like, Oh, my God, I know what I want. And why? And he, like, and it's like this full realization of why they did all the hard work, because now they can quickly answer this. And then we've got other clients that are people that we've come across where they've spent two years and hundreds of thousands of dollars learning in the moment. So like, if you, you've got some stories that you tell in our training about like how owners think that they're 
getting some really good deal, but then they go through the end through the whole out of the blue offer with their, you know, nieces, you know, a state attorney. And they, they have all these kind of like, I want to call them C player people just to get the deal done, to make sure that the dollar amount is still there. And they go all the way through and they're like, Oh my God, I, I won. I got, I sold for millions of dollars. And you've got this experience in your past where they don't know what they left on the table because it's just a gap in knowledge. Right. So you have this, so like, Oh, there's euphoria, but there's this whole world that they just have no idea how either they got taken to the cleaners or they left money on the table or terms or conditions. What is your experience watching people who know what they're doing versus who are learning on the fly? I mean, how do you even. It's night and day. If if you do the work to understand what's important to you personally, what's what numbers you have to hit financially in order to, to, satisfy your goals and your needs for you and your family, you know, if you were going to sell, what role you want to play in a future company, what, I mean, what drives you and, and you get an out of the blue offer, you can logically talk about those things that are, that are important to you. And if people can't see their way to, to satisfy those, then they move on. The, the other way is somebody comes in out of the blue offer and a lot of times these are very professional people. They're very good at what they do if you're doing dealing with a PE firm or a family office or or people like that, where they make it sound great and and you know, sometimes they'll promise you the moon. And then when it gets down to it and you're at the closing table and you sign, you talk to your tax preparer and you look at what you end up with, you're unhappy. You look at what happens to your employees, your customers, your suppliers, you're unhappy. I mean, I think you did an interview with somebody who said 80% of the people who, after they sell their business, they're unhappy when it's because they didn't determine upfront what's important to them. And that's not just financially. A lot of people who were very, had a, a great success on the financial side of selling their business are still unhappy because they don't know what's important to them. So or, or don't it, you it's think critical to do that work. I don't care if you're thinking about selling in, three years or 30 years. It's really important to do that hard work now. Well, and I also think that, let's say like even in my situation, where technically from like a mechanic perspective, the the sale worked out, like every advisor that you would look at, like put it in front of them, like, oh, that worked out. But it was the intangible stuff. Like you talked about, like the legacy, the employees, what we wanted for the business, et cetera. However, I would add one thing, like we just didn't know there were other options. And that's what I've watched other people going, oh my God, I didn't know I could sell my company's ownership, get some money, continue running the business as a leader for the next 30 years. Didn't know that was an option. Or I could become a passive owner and put a management team in and still collect the distributions. And then they just, people don't know until they're too burnt out. And then they're trying to, I think that they, like, what do you, what are your thoughts on the, this phrase or like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs and owners that we've come across that I talk to a lot on our coaching calls is that they think that they're going to get one over on this, on the buyer. Like, Oh my gosh, this company is not worth 10 million, but I'm going to do all these things and just quickly run it through because they're going to find this out. What is your response to that? Yeah, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. I mean, most times you're dealing with very professional people who you're not going to get something over on them, but you, you hit on something when you were just talking about choices. That's the key. Most business owners, when they get to an out of the blue offer and they start having a discussion, they think it's a choice between, and and it is because they haven't done the hard work, a choice between my life now where I'm unhappy about 
the wealth I'm creating, the enjoyment I'm getting out of work, or the impact I'm making. Or lack of. Or this or lack of those things, or this deal somebody laid in front of me. They think it's a binary choice. That's all that it's this or that. Where if you do the work beforehand, you've got more choices than that. And based on what's important to you, you can say to a potential buyer that's an out of the blue offer, here are the things that are important to me. And if you can't accommodate that, move on. And and plus, just knowing what the value of your company is worth. I worked for a client. We had a client. We made uh, we made an out of the we approached somebody. Um, we didn't make an out of the blue offer, but it was out of the blue. We engaged in discussions with them. We said to them, "What is it you want for your company?" And they gave us a price. And we did the analysis, and we went back to them and said, "We will pay you that exact price." <laughs> What's your first sign that you, L- you asked for too less, too little? Signed LOI. Went through the diligence, closed, paid them, didn't didn't hold any back, paid them to the nickel, exactly what they wanted. And that person got about a third of what it was worth. So now I was working for the buyer, so it's not my job to tell him, but he didn't have the right professionals. He didn't understand. He just he just didn't understand. And maybe he was happy as a lark. I don't I don't know because I didn't keep in touch with him afterwards, but. There's just no need for that. I mean, there's no need to, transactions need to be at fair value. Of course, PE firms are looking to harvest value in the future that, that people may have left on the table. That doesn't mean they don't pay fair, fair value for it. But, you know, I mean, so many people sell their company, they get a good payday, <coughs> excuse me, half their employees are fired, they close down the plant, they, you know, and the, the previous owner's going, what's going on here? I mean, that's not what I signed up for. You know, they become a pariah in a small mm-hmm. town where they used to employ, you know, 10% of the town or something. So you, they you, solve you for the money super- in that situation. And I think what's what, but you can do it and have choices if you know what you're doing. And that that's right. And I think what's so crazy is like, it, there was one week, like a couple months ago, I had, I think it was close. It was a half a dozen people. A couple of people signed up for a training. Like, yeah, I just got an audible offer. Like multiple people. Or I just signed an LOI. And I'm just going, yeah, that sucks. Like you just signed it. Like your, your negotiation on everything is already behind. You have nothing. You have no leverage and nothing yeah. to stand on. And I think it's this, when you said that uh, the, the get, for an audible offer that might make sense. And then the anxiety sets in because it's now it's, everything's urgent, like urgent and reactive. And when you are coming at a position of a lack of knowledge, you're going to do whatever someone says with no idea how that move rippled a bunch of chess pieces in a different direction in a game you don't know how to play. And let's talk about the process of maybe like the normal, what we see as the out of blue process and what sh- compared to the, what should be the process. So let's say out of blue offer happens, some discussions happen what we see on that compared to like how it could be handled. So it, it, it runs a big gamut um, from people sending out PowerPoints to hundreds of people in an industry soliciting a, a discussion. I mean, we have a client who actually got an out of the blue solicitation. I'm not going to call it an offer from a company that you knew mm-hmm. that was different states, miles, <laughs> different states, a thousand miles away. And you're like, so, I mean, they're just sending this stuff out to, to try and get a bite. But what a lot of times what they'll do is, is somebody will express some interest like, oh, you don't need an attorney. 
You don't need an investment banker. You don't need a broker. You don't look, this will go smooth. Just don't talk to anybody. (laughs) Yeah. We'll, we'll just, we'll pay you fair, fair price for it. and, And let's just do this. And there's such a thing as buyer's fever. I mean, it's a, I mean, seller's fever. It's a real thing where somebody, they dangle a, a number in front of you and you tell your family and you get all spent the money do stuff about, about the money. And then all of a sudden they start chipping away at the money and the, and the terms and conditions. Oh, we want to earn out. We want you to carry some paper. We want, you know, all these things that, you know, but they've already got, they only do that once they've got your hook. Which, which wouldn't they, then they send, Hey, why don't we let's sign an NDA? Send me your last three years of financials, your org chart, your customer list. And then we'll send you an LOI. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you've already shared the crown jewels, you know, and it's a, it's a competitive disadvantage. There's a process. So there's this people who most business owners have spent their life building this business. They've risked everything probably multiple times. You know, they've signed their personally with the bank multiple times. They've gone without paychecks multiple periods of time. And then when they think there's this, this, this jackpot at the end of the rainbow there, and they, they get, but they're not professionals at negotiating these things or understanding what's, port, what's important. And oftentimes they get taken advantage of. It's not that doesn't mean these people are evil people. Right. It's just the, it's just the asymmetrical information. It's, 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 exactly. They're just at different levels. And and these PE firms, they are professional. I mean, we have a client now where they they got an out of the blue offer. They said, Oh, you don't need an investment banker. They hired an investment banker, and there were some people in the organization thought that was going to kill the deal. It did not kill the deal whatsoever. It probably made it go smoother. Um, you know, and and it just it just goes better and you get a more fair price. But people get caught up in it. And my point was business owners aren't professional you don't know the process. folks at selling their business. They don't know the process. They've never done it. So they're like, okay, you know. Sure, sure I'll send um, my information. They, Here's the NDA. I'll send some information. And then let me just kind of like I'll walk through what I talk. They end up sharing too much too soon. <laughs> Everything too soon, right? They're at a disadvantage. So the uh, – in in that situation with the, the out of blue offers, we you know we've had it. We're like okay, sign an NDA, get some stuff over, then they sign the LOI. They send over an LOI, which has got some vague terms in it, which we'll go over like what a normal process would be. They, but vague terms in there, exclusivity, and let's say it's a ten million dollar offer, and then all of a sudden due diligence starts. And my, the reason I kind of give some of that context is I've I've talked to so many people where. They think that they're going to, when I say get one over, is they think for some reason that this buyer's perfect and the number's perfect and all these reasons because they can visualize why it makes sense. But I have noticed is because owners don't know enough about valuations to say your your net worth is already $10 million. Well, whatever the net proceeds of that would be. So you, let's say let's say it was seven and they had some you know investments outside of it. You're, you're already worth $10 million. It's just partially, mostly in this illiquid asset, you're not going to get one over and this buyer is not going to buy a $5 million asset for $10 million by accident. And so they just don't have this concept of understanding that this is actually what it's worth. It's just locked in this asset because they've never viewed it as an asset. They viewed it as a job. All right. So you said something and we're going to go down a rabbit hole here. Most times people say we're not going to go down a rabbit hole. You said, but we're going to, (laughs) but we're going, but we're going to net proceeds. 
it is most people don't understand. Somebody says, I'll buy your company for 10 million. They haven't thought about the fact I've got three partners. We have $8 million of debt that we have to pay off at close. I got to pay taxes and, and deals. And when they, they haven't thought at all about what's going to go in their bank account at the end. You know, it's the, oh, I go to the, I go on the golf course or I go to a party or I, I'm in a social setting and say, I sold my business for $10 million. You know, they may have put $800,000 in their bank account. I mean, that's an extreme. Mm, example. Is it that extreme though? All the time. And it's, it's just that lack of knowledge and, and people on being on different levels that it, that's what you and I spend our life trying to help people avoid. Well, and, and is being in that, in that you call it asymmetrical situation mm-hmm. where of knowledge, where I'm going to go back. If you have a list of what it is I want, what's important to me, I know what my net proceeds were if I sold it for this. And here's what I think is important to my, here's what's important to, for my employees, my location, my customers. You've leveled the playing field when you can articulate it to even the most sophisticated of PE firms in that clear language, you've already put yourself in advantage. You've eliminated the disadvantage you were at before for somebody else who has no idea what they want. Well, and yes, totally. And like, so by understanding that proceeds is one whole thing in itself, but then also understanding the deal structures and then like the actual like economics of it. And how many times have you heard Oh, well, you got another blue offer. So you don't need to hire an investment banker or broker. And what you should just do is hire a CPA or an attorney just to get the deal done. And this one recently where it was like, hey, let's just hire an attorney. And it's like, there was a, I actually did a presentation years ago and someone raised their hand and said, I've never met an attorney that understands working capital. <laughs> and and that doesn't mean that every attorney doesn't, but there's just a, it's a rare thing. And explain like, your perspective on hiring an intermediary, even if you have an out of the blue offer and why that's a thing. If you have a company that's worth an amount of any of a size that, that warrant, I mean, more than just. You're talking five, five to 10 million and above. Yeah. Five million up. You need an intermediary who's experienced at negotiating experience at helping you understand what the marketplace values and is experienced in negotiating with, with people, you know, at the right level. You'll pay for it, but you'll get your money back a couple of times. I mean, it is trying to do something you have zero experience with and zero knowledge about. I mean, who would do that? I mean, you know, normally you, you just wouldn't do that. But again, people get all excited and they maybe form a little bit of bond with somebody. And, but no, who knows more about know. my business than me, Pat? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but major sarcasm but, for anybody that can't and, see and, us. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and, they can, and those people can be the bad guy. This is when people get to the point where they're thinking about selling their business, this is most likely the largest asset they own. And most people do it once. It has to be done right wow. to shortchange yourself on such a significant event is, is just tragic. You just, you just don't want to go in it's such a disadvantage. This is the same industry. We have the same accounting system, the same staff, all these things. Like, you know, someone's going to take three, 4% of this entire deal. Come on. I already know everything about it. I got a tax guy, a gal, I got an attorney and we can get this done. Yeah, you can. You probably can. So it's you for the price that it's worth. (laughs) And and you're going to get taken advantage of. I mean, the ability to negotiate the right deal is not automatic. 
I was a CFO of a client. We had a great business that we loved. We were making a ton of money. Out of the blue offer from a platform company of a PE firm. They came along. We sent them packing several times. Finally, we said, okay, if you want, if you want to buy us, here's the number. And I thought that number would make them go away because it was so, it was such a big number. But I knew why they wanted to buy us. I knew the, I knew the purpose of it from their point of view. And I knew they needed us. And we were making a ton of money and having a great time. But uh, we happened to be an ESOP. So we had some obligation to look at it if, if it came along. And they paid, the, they paid the money. And I knew what they wanted. I knew what we wanted. And it, after the deal was over and, and closed, the, other, the lawyer on the other side said to me, Pat, you guys have an interesting way of negotiating. I said, what's that? He's like, you don't. You don't negotiate. I'm like, why should we? We knew we told you exactly what we wanted. We were perfectly happy walking away and continue to run our business the way we run it. We had choices because you had a plan and you had choices and you knew what the plan. alternatives were. And and I and I want to shift over to that for a second, kind of walk through what the ideal situation is. And I'll, I want to start with like a quick story and then get back to why the, the the team of advisors and specifically about working capital pat because you and i talked about like why an attorney or, or someone in front of the blue offer that they don't take it and go through a normal process how just even the working capital and the deal structure could again because most people don't know it could leave someone completely you know taken advantage of and they don't even know it i want to go back to that in a second but you said about choices in this plan and you were an esop and how that worked and you and i this and this was a couple we, you know, a month or so ago, which is why we're having this podcast. I was like, I just got to do a, a podcast on this because I want to send this to someone because there were so many people that reached out in uh, the course of a week or two. And a handful of them were our clients, which I thought was very interesting. I, I'm, clients that had gone through the training, just to, just to be clear too, and that weren't our CFO clients. And I said, these are individuals who got done with the training and said, I'm going to go from 1 million to 2 million, 5 million to 12 million in value. And I'm going to do an ESOP in four years. And these are all the reasons because the legacy employee, all these different things, they built out their financials, they built a plan. And yet all of a sudden they're entertaining these discussions. And I'm like, well, this is just super interesting. I'm not saying that anybody shouldn't because like if your company's worth 10 million and someone throws a $18 million off in front of you, like you have every right and you should probably explore why that is. But if you've said like, hey, these are my non-negotiables for my stakeholders, my employees, whatever it is, like you have a certain desire to lead yourself to a certain direction. You build a plan. And the way that you and I teach is you can literally see the value of your company in five years out if you if you built your financials and your plan correctly. Yet all of a sudden, people are going, I think I want to entertain this. And I asked someone recently, I was like, why are you doing that? If you're so motivated to work this plan, he's like, there's an escape hatch. And I found it so such an interesting perspective. So like explain like your level of... What did they mean by that? I think it was because they weren't confident in their own ability and plan. And so when you said that, oh yeah, I can just walk away and I I don't negotiate because you had zero fear (laughs) that you were going to accomplish your goals, kick out that money and do whatever the hell you wanted. So just explain the feeling that you get or that you get once our clients have it or that you see someone that has a legit plan that allows them to have those choices and what 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 comes with that okay there's there's a lot there there's a lot there's a lot to that but if you do the work 
to understand what it is you want personally and financially. If you understand what your choices are, you understand what exit options kind of bubble to the top, you know, of what it is. And you, you do strategic planning, you fold those strategies into your financial forecast. If you do all that work so that with, you can project out what your company's going to look like in, in five years based on those assumptions. Now the world can throw, can throw curveballs at you. But when you do that hard work, your confidence level goes up. Okay, maybe I'm off 10 or 15% from that, but I'm not off 60% because I've done the hard work to understand what my strategies are. If I implement them, roll those into my financials, I look and see what the, the cash flow of my business is, my debt levels. I can, I can predict the at least the intrinsic value. And, and maybe the transactional value based on today's metrics out into the future. I understand what my net proceeds are. Then you can say, okay, I have a minimum I need of net proceeds of X. Anything above that's gravy. I can accomplish my life's goals by, and you may be 30 years old and you want to sell your business and, and roll that money into another venture. But if I hit X, I know I, that I'm okay. And somebody comes along and they're like, well, we understand all that, but we want to fire all your employees. It will give you two X. Well, then you have a way to measure. Is that extra amount worth it? Is it worth 60 people losing their job? Who knows? And everybody might answer the question differently. It may be. And that's, and that's okay. But to make that decision in the dark and without any information. It's absurd. And to think I'm going to get two X. And then the next day they, you, you have to go back and fire 60 people. And you've done that, you know, is gut wrenching. If that's not, if you haven't thought about that. So it, I think you, what I wanted to, to, to try to accomplish is just give people a taste of what that confidence can feel like you, compared oh, to the anxiety. It's life altering. It, it, I've just, I've worked with business owners who they go to bed anxious and they wake up anxious. <laughs> and you said something a, a couple of weeks ago, wouldn't it be nice to wake up and be excited about the day or to be excited about tomorrow. And it can literally bring that significant of a change to your mindset. It's so interesting. If, if, you do, if you do the work and you understand this, you have confidence in your plan, you're developing your people, you're developing your processes, you're expanding your market, you're growing, whatever, whatever your growth strategies are, the things that you need to do to reduce your risk so that your cash flow is sustainable, predictable, and transferable, it is literally life-altering in your, in your mindset. And you're now in charge. You know, you, you have small kids. I have older kids. I, I tell you all the time, your kids act up when they feel like they don't have any control. Mm -hmm. I believe that about Which adults. is a lot right now. <laughs> and the adults do it a lot too. <laughs> when I'm around them, they're adorable. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Adults act up when they feel like they're not in control. Just imagine feeling like you're in control. If somebody gives you an out of the blue offer, fine. Here's my here are my conditions. If if you don't get an out of the blue offer, no big deal. Because you know what it's You've worth. You've got a plan yeah. in place. You got a plan in place to achieve what you want to achieve. So here's what's interesting, and I'm not. This is this is um, this is one of my biggest epiphanies over the last 
handful of years working with you is that a lot of entrepreneurs, and I'm, this is coming from my own perspective, I might as well just say my own mind is strategically, they know what's up, like in their industry, where they're going. That's why they started. They saw a problem. They saw an opportunity, whatever it might be, where they've product pricing fit services, how they compare to their, all that. Cause there's a lot of competitive, the anxiety or the anxiety and desire to compete, I think are all kind of bound together in the same kind of emotion. And you can understand potential strategies like that, but you can't see what's going on all the time unless you do the financials the right way. And when I started working with you, I went, holy shit, this is truly what it means to see into the future. Because what we were doing was just looking at the income statement, looking at our bank balance and our lines of credit going, we good, let's do this. <laughs> let's buy more stuff, sell more things and make more margin. And I'm obviously being ridiculously facetious <laughs> slightly, but like, you know, that's to the extent, that's kind of the extent of kind of what's going on. But like when you can yeah. see, cause like when you talk about your strategy, you and I have, we went through the Donald Miller story brand experience, which was painful yet, I think liberating for both of us. And it's this idea that entrepreneurs and, and business owners have this vision of what they want for their business and their life, the kind of wealth that they want, the impact that they want to have, but they can't see the path there. They can see it in the strategies or the people, the players or products or services that might get them there, but they have no idea how to get there or when and how you've succeeded. And it's because of the numbers. Can you just quickly describe the three statement model, Pat, and then how the projections forward can actually give you like a three-dimensional view of your business years in advance or years out? Yeah, and right before that, you're talking about strategies. I think a lot of business owners, they do have in their mind the ideas about strategies to get them where they want to go. If if we had a dollar for every time we talked to a business owner and we say, oh, do you have a strategic plan or a business plan or whatever they want to call Oh, yeah, yeah, we have that. I'm like, oh, well, call it up on the screen. Call it up on your computer. Well, it's it's written on the back of a napkin in my drawer. You know, getting it down on paper is really important. What's our competitive advantage? What's our, you know, what's our marketplace like? What stage of business are we in? Are we a cash cow? Are we a star? I mean, all the, you know, all these things that just help formalize and make people think about that is is really helpful. You can't really make progress unless you Mm -hmm. do that. Once you decide on what your strategies are, you've got to translate that into your financials. Financials are the language of business. Period. And period. And to tell the story to your employees, your customers, your vendors, your bank, or or a potential partner or acquirer, to tell that story, you tell that story through the financials. There's a lot of other stuff. You're a sales marketing guy. I'm a I'm a I'm a finance guy. And talking about your customers and your market and, and your products and your services, that's hugely important it all eventually gets translated into the financial. Every single time. Every single time. And when you get to the thought of selling your business, how much money you make is important. How, what your balance sheet looks like and what you owe is important to think about net proceeds. You get to the third statement, which is statement of cash flows. That's really important to understand how all this fits together. One without the other two, you're just telling 
part of the story and you don't understand it. A potential buyer is doing all that hard work. They've already done it for their own business, they're, right? They're putting, well, they're putting it, if, you, if you're going to engage with somebody to potentially sell your business, they are developing a three-statement model to understand how your business how is run and how it's interacting and what the cash flows are and what's the profitability and, and you know, what the balance sheet looks like. It's really important to them. And they love working with people who don't do that Well, and the, the, because they don't, they don't, they don't get it. And, and so it is, it is so critical to, to look at that. It is the most valuable asset you have. And if you want to grow the value of that asset, you got to look at it in a comprehensive way. Well, and that's what gives you, like, goes back to your confidence that you have in choice and the ability to walk away. Like, if you can go in and you can say, okay, I can literally pull up my financials and I can see my income statement, my balance sheet, and my cash flow statement three years out. I can see what my revenue, my net income, my margins, my working capital, my distributions, my taxes, and I can actually see what's up and whether I can actually afford to do the strategies or not, because you've got it all there. Essentially, like what what has continuously come up is people don't have a plan, so they have no way to vet it against anything. And they're going, well, okay, what's my income statement? Well, today's, you know, right now it's May. So here's May. We made money. We got cash in the bank. Well, how the hell do you know what you're going to do in 2023? It's just all based on hope and faith. Yeah. And hope is not a strategy. I mean, luck is. Sometimes I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Luck's a thing, and, and you want some luck, but but you you want to be able to, in concrete terms, translate your strategies into the financials. The more you can do that, the more you can challenge them, vet them out, have people have people question that. The higher your confidence level goes up, say we can do that. We can open three new offices over the next four years. Here's the cost. Here's the potential revenue we have. Here are the margins. Here's what's going to do to our contribution margin. Here's the working capital we need. Are we going to self-fund it? Are we going to get debt? What's it going to do to my ability to take out distributions? All those things. You can't answer those questions unless unless you do all that work in the financials in a comprehensive way. And when you know what that path is and have a, a high degree of confidence in it, you can you can set that up against what somebody may offer you and say, no, thanks. Cause I'm going to be there in two years. No, thank you. Right. And then I'm, I'm where you are. Plus I've, you know, got more growth and I've, I've taken distributions for two years, or you can say, this is a really good deal. These people need me badly and, and I'm not going to get there in five years. And so I'm going to take this deal. It's, it's just, it's and let's, just let's compare that to, liberating when you do that work. Life altering, like you said, and let's go back to yeah. your situation because I think what's so applicable is that with an ESOP, you've got your three statement model projected out five years, not only because you're you and that's how you always <laughs> everything, but also it's because it's an ESOP and you have a fiduciary responsibility to the stakeholders of the ESOP trust, which are the employees. And so you have that five-year plan and that's how you knew how to benchmark the offer that you said was too ridiculous, right? Because then the trustee said to you, Pat, you guys, you, you have to look at this because this is more than you would make based on your plan for five years. Or it was really, if you get out, if you get out to the value a couple of years out, then the, the trustee is going to tell you probably should take it because, you don't you know, there's business risk and now it's not just your money, but it, it that's exactly right. You, you have a confidence level 
that enables you to personally make a decision about whether something's worth it or not. And it puts you in a negotiating position that puts you in the 1%. So true. I mean, the PE firms are like, oh, these people know what they're talking about. I mean, if we have clients where if somebody said, hey, we want, if the, if the owner said, I'm, I've got an out of the blue offer, I want to entertain, I, you know, we talk about signing an LOI, we've done our diligence or that or we've done our work on that part and we want to share information. We could send them one file that had three to five years, depending on the client, of historical three statement financials and four to five years of projections. It's just done. We could send it today. It never, ever happens. I mean, you and I have seen it. Like- and, and that puts you in a different position than everybody else with, with negotiating with a potential buyer. Let's talk about what, so let's say someone, like, let's say someone has a plan. So they've done the strategic plan. They built their financials in the way that we teach and adhere to and, and practice with our clients. So they got the three statement model. They got the trailing 12 months, month to month, years back, they got the projections. They understand what's going on fully yet. They still get an Alibu offer. So let's say they, again, they're, they're on track to the five-year plan to get to evaluation, to make the choices. They got all the stuff ready to go. And now they're running their normal weekly management meetings and quarterlies and all the, you know, stuff that comes with uh, run, nor, normally running a business, but they're going, okay, this is something hot market in my industry, that person's private equity backed and whatever the, the signs are that say, this is something that you shouldn't ignore. Let's walk through just, if you want to just quickly run through like, Hey, what are the milestones? How would, how should someone approach this and think about it from, and maybe I, I don't want to leave that too um, ambiguous. So like, what would they, what, what should someone do in that situation? That's confident where they are at right now and how they should actually vet an out of the blue offer instead of just running to the goal line as fast as possible with an attorney or CPA. Right. So you should, if, if, if it seems like it's something you want to pursue, you should clearly articulate to the potential buyer what your non-negotiables are monetarily and non-monetarily. I need a minimum, you know, of X. I want all my employees kept. I don't want to shut it down. I, I want to, I want to roll some money into the new venture. I want to stay, I want to stay running the business. I want out, you mm-hmm. know, a month after. Whatever those things are, if you can just say, here are the five, six, seven, eight things that have to happen. And if you can't agree to those up front, then we don't need to talk. Even before an NDA, right? <laughs> it, oh, I, you know, if it you could you could get an NDA sign because you're gonna but you're not going to share customer lists. You're not going to share employee lists. You're not going to share financials even, any. right? Say, you, so you might sign in the A and say, here's our top line and here's our, here's our trailing 12-month normalized EBITDA. Right there, if you say that, they're going to be like, okay, these people. Yeah, this is no joke. Wait, are they PE-backed? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, would, they, would, they would, you would then be in a different spot. And, you know, if they're like, okay, we can do that. Then you start negotiating an LOI. And I learned from some, some investment banking friends. I'm going to give them a plug, Prairie Capital <laughs> Advisors in Chicago. Negotiating the LOI is one of the more critical mm-hmm. parts of it. You don't want to have some loosey-goosey LOI that somebody then can, what they call retrade, can say, oh, well, you know, this is a little vague. We didn't mean we're going to pay $10 million. 
we meant we're going to pay a six at close and you're going to take a loan for four. And by the way, we're borrowing money from the bank. So you can't start getting paid for three years. Oh, sorry. I forgot to tell you that, Pat. Did, did we not mention that beforehand? Oh, what, what, what you know, about in that, that point, when you find that out, it's going to be what? 120 days in a couple hundred grand worth of expenses. And <laughs> you've, you've mentally spent some of the money <laughs> and, and they're counting on mm-hmm. Hold your family. You've told other people you, you know, you don't want to look like you're backing out. I mean, it, it, so negotiating that LOI and there's just, my, my point of that is there's a process. Mm-hmm. And when you know it and you have people working f- with you, it's good to have a team of advisors that understands this. Uh, no disrespect to lawyers who do wills and estates, but they're not qualified typically to do mergers and acquisition work. You want to do your will and estate. You know, or your lease, or your you know your employment supplier. law, or contract law, or whatever. whatever it might be. Um, you don't want if your CPA has has worked on three mergers and acquisition deals over the last ten years. They're not the people to help understand what your net proceeds are going to be and and what's the purchase price allocation that's best for you for tax purposes. Yeah, and then going back, that's, that's just not in their wheelhouse. All these different kind of things. That, you know, if your insurance agent has never heard of reps and warranties insurance, those aren't the people that you want to be dealing with in order to, to close a deal that maximizes the benefit to you. So I, I'm saying a lot of those different things just to make the point. It's critical to understand the process. And if you can say, okay, you've crossed the first hurdle, let's now negotiate an LOI. But by the way, I want these professionals. Mm-hmm. Well, and let's even go back because like help me get the right terms and conditions. Because like you said, all that, and I know we're rounding out. We got uh, five, ten more minutes here, and then we'll we'll close it up here. Is the all that is negotiated prior to the LOI? So like when I like, there's nothing more disheartening. It's part of the part, LOI. Yeah, it, well, yeah, because it's all in the LOI. So like when I get these phone calls, and I just want to go, son of a bitch, like. <laughs> okay, I'm not supposed to swear. I'm looking at Pat's looking at me. <laughs> uh, so the it's like it's way too late. Like you know, everything's gone. Like you, all of the things that Pat just mentioned are supposed to be in that document, not the purchase agreement. They're going to be the price, the price allocation, all that stuff is going to be in the purchase agreement. But like the LOI, the letter of intent is we have an intent of structuring the purchase like this with these terms and conditions, and. So all of that work, by the time someone signs that, which usually comes with an exclusivity for like 90 days or whatever, you're just like, oh my gosh, like whatever's there is there. But if you were to do it the yeah. right way, sign the NDA like Pat was talking about, go through those discussions and then hire the, the right advisors to pre-do or pre, pre-plan that entire, yeah, yeah pre-negotiate yeah. that whole LOI. Due diligence is just fact-checking everything that's in the LOI versus, you know, the alternative, which is just, I'm assuming. Yeah. A letter of intent should be, a proper letter of intent should be one absent finding something in diligence that throws a monkey wrench in it that you should be able to close on. There you go. You should right be able there. to prepare your definitive documents and close on that. I mean, the worst nightmare, and uh, I was a controller for a law, a business law firm for quite a while, and I would just hear him talk about, oh, we had a client call and said, oh, I signed an <laughs> LOI today. And now I need you to help me get this. And it's just like, oh my gosh. Or investment bankers get that call all the time. That's just like, okay, that that's the worst of all possible worlds. And and I think it's be so going back to 
why that happens is the anxiety and the urgency to try and get this done before someone finds something out versus and not knowing. And the and some like you said earlier, somebody's not going to accidentally pay you twice. <laughs> That's not, that's not going to happen. So <laughs> quit thinking should, like that. Right. Oh, uh, it's so ridiculous. And uh, I think it, there's something to be, uh, I want to just spend a, a minute or two on if you choose to run, let me give you my, let me give you just my two second story. And then, then I want you to give, I want your feedback, Pat is so like what I, I there was someone on my podcast years ago that had this amazing uh, description of how to handle the out of the blue offer for like actually then running a control process. So they were like having conversations with strategic potential strategic buyers for years, got an out of the blue offer. And then people are like, well, you can, you can save the investment banking fee. If you just go that direction, instead of creating the whole, yeah, you're shaking your head. <laughs> like and, and versus taking the whole thing to a controlled auction. So like how we helped a couple of clients go through over this last six months. Hey, if you want to just entertain that, or maybe a couple other ones, the investment banker should have a reduced fee because they're doing less work by not doing that controlled auction. Or you could have a slightly different version of a controlled auction. Can you kind of explain kind of the like how someone should handle that and what, what your thoughts are on hiring an intermediary, even though you might have only one or five people instead of 400 that, that an intermediary is handling? Yeah, and the couple of deals that you're talking about were clients that were big deals, multi tens of millions of dollars of purchase price. In in those situations, even if it's kind of a one off, you have a you know who the buyer is, they've approached you, you know that kind of thing, and they'll say, oh, you don't need a you don't need an investment bank or anything. So many of the terms and conditions that need to be negotiated can make or break a deal that. If you have a, and these, like I say, these were big deals. And if you don't do that, what, what you, you may pay somebody a few hundred thousand dollars, but I'm telling you, you're going to, in most cases, you're going to save that money in a multiple of ways. Because if it's a PE backed firm that's got a giant law firm and a big CPA firm, man, you are at a disadvantage oh if you're not getting the right people. And, and plus, to the degree you don't have somebody helping you, you're now, as a business owner, spending all your time mm-hmm. working on this, not paying attention to the business. And then if the business starts slipping a little bit, you've just handed them as an excuse to lower the purchase price. Mm-hmm. Which is so interesting. That even goes on to right. the, the point that we were talking about. That happens all the time. Well, yeah, and we were talking about earlier about if you have that plan with your financials and strategic plan, most often that owner who's running that business doesn't have as much of an active day-to-day management role because you're more managing the asset. So therefore you can spend more of your time talking to people like this versus running the business because you have a plan. So like this whole thing of a plan, actually, <laughs> it's weird how it benefits every single thing. But going back to what you said, like you can, the the business, the, the purchase price can retrade after the LOI and during due diligence. And you know, the bigger you get, the the more it's even unbelievably crucial on the working capital. Can you just explain for a minute, like what that, what that means? Yeah. So every seller, uh, and this is of deals of any size, I mean, of almost any size, except the smallest of the small, every seller is expected to deliver the buyer a normal quote unquote level of working capital, which in most businesses is AR inventory, less payables, your working capital. The reason that that's important is because 
the buyer wants to be able to operate the business with a normal level of working capital receivables coming in, having enough inventory to do their business and, you know, uh, and, and handle the payables. And they don't want the, they don't want the, um, the seller to run down receivables, for example, by offering everybody a discount to pay early because you get to, the seller gets to keep the cash <laughs> in most every So make the joke, make the joke that you always do in our training. Cause <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're buying, somebody's <laughs> buying a business that's at a normal level of operating. But if you don't understand that somebody can take serious advantage of you and saying, well, your normal level of working capital is $3 million. And you're like, okay. And if you don't deliver $3 million at close, let's say you deliver 2 million, they take a million away from you. If you deliver 4 million, you get an extra million. So it, it, it's designed to be legit, but I'm telling you, I've seen it so many times where if the seller doesn't understand that, they're relying on the buyer to tell them what normal level, normalized working capital is. And it's not right. They're they're making them leave more. Now why would you want the there? buyer telling you how much your working capital is? Because you don't you, you wouldn't. You you it's because you don't understand. I had a lawyer recently tell me, oh, we can advise people on that. And I'm like, no, you can't. <laughs> I'm like, um, an investment banker can, but we had a we had a client who bought a company. All this plays into buying as mm -hmm. well. Everything we've said plays if you're on the hunt to buy companies. They negotiated a level of working capital. They told the seller what it was. The seller agreed to it. And you can make an argument. They weren't being deceitful or anything, but they were pushing the envelope a little bit, I have to admit. They got 30% of their purchase price back in the working capital adjustment. Mm. So it cost the seller a bunch of money. So it, we, we, we went over a lot of technical stuff. But I, th I think we need to bring it back to the concept. You have a business that has, it's an asset. You want to grow the value of that asset. You need a plan in place to do that that's translated into the financial so that you have some visibility to the future. If you do that and have a high degree of confidence in it, these out-of-the-blue offers don't become anxiety-inducing events. You want to be on the lookout for legit ones because there could be a reason somebody wants to pay you 2x for your business mm -hmm. of, of what the intrinsic value is. And you want to seriously consider that. But you can say, here's what it is. Here's what's important to me. Here's the first hurdle you have to cross. If not, I don't want to talk. About, I don't, there's no reason for you or, or me to waste our How time. How peaceful is that? Oh, my. It, it is. It brings a level of confidence and 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 peacefulness and that it, it, a mindset that enables you to focus on what's important to you instead of all this noise and this, you know, should I call them? Should I not call them? Should I respond to the, the email? Chaos. Should I not? The, the, that's a great word for it. All the chaos that normally comes from out of the blue waters. And I'll just leave it at this because, and, and this is no, shameful plug for us because like the training that we created was because this is exactly what I wish we would have had eight years ago. You were doing a lot of this for your clients without the framework, but the, the stress of running a business without a plan is just, it just doesn't need to be that way. 
whether or not you get out of blue. Right. I mean, it's like like the amount of bullshit people deal with because they don't know what they should be doing and why, or they don't have a like it, the whole like you're in your organized presentations of that Google Maps point A and point B. If you don't know where you're going, how in God's name are you going to filter what is in front of you, that decision, that fork in the road against anything else? And like, so just the constant anxiety, it's like, it's, it, it's such a frustrating situation for me to watch that because it's a bummer because the reason people took the risk to begin with was to have choices and freedom. And they found themselves most often with less and more risk. And so then they take the cash out because they want to reward themselves for the risk that they, ha- they have, but instead it sometimes makes things worse <laughs> instead of makes things better. There are three things business owners want. Come on, you do it because they can't see us oh, given yeah. Pat and I, we work yeah. together to, too long because we're just giving ourselves facial, facial expressions right now. They, they want to create wealth, enjoy work, and make an impact. And when one of those things are lacking, there's frustration and people leave a lot of money and choices and freedom on the table because they don't know what they have in front of them. The way to get those things is to plan. And I would argue that before you plan, you should what? Learn. (laughs) You've got to get, you've got to get, you've got to level up your education. You've got to, you've got to understand what it means to plan. Well, this has been an absolute blast. This is going to be a fun, uh, fun interview that I'm going to hopefully as people are getting out of the blue offers, or they have friends that if you're listening in, you've got a friend that's mentioned this to you, send this to them just to give them things to think about. Because if Pat and I and Arcona and the rest of the team decided to have phone calls for people, that was just a life or like an open phone tree to talk to people that had out of the blue offers. I think we'd be busy all day every day, and we don't, we don't, it's all, it's all yeah, day. we don't have a nonprofit, so that's not possible. So this podcast is as close as we can get. So thanks, Pat. This has been a lot of fun. Yep, been fun. hope you enjoyed that interview with Pat. It is so relevant because there's so much activity going on right now. And even if you're listening to this and it's like years into the future, all these concepts still apply even if the market's down because the anxiety that comes with not having a plan, not knowing what your company's worth, not knowing what your options are, is you're going to try and jam a sale through and get one over on some buyer that most likely is extremely smart, knows exactly what they're willing to pay and how to pay it, and you're going to learn it all on the fly. The number one way to solve this problem is to fill your knowledge gap. Go check out the Intentional Growth Training where you can learn how all of this stuff works to reduce your anxiety, fill up your knowledge coffers, and then take control over the future plan of your company, grow value, and create choices. It's worth all of the time and effort. I know it takes a lot of emotional energy to stop and actually learn. And I'm just going to leave you with that one quote from Abe Lincoln, which is that if I got six hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend the first four sharpening the ax. And the way to sharpen your ax is to sharpen your knowledge. So that way you can know exactly what's in front of you and what your choices are. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.